0: Welcome to Conversations with Alan Wolper, a half-hour audio biography featuring unique personalities whose lives and ideas are on the cutting edge. Alan Wolper is an award-winning journalist and a professor at Rutgers University, Newark. And now, here's Conversations with Alan Wolper. Helen Benedict is a novelist and a journalist whose investigation of sexual assaults in the military has won the attention of the Pentagon and the White House. She received the prestigious Ida B. Wells Award for her book, The Lonely Soldier, The Private War of Women in Iraq. It's given to journalists who champion the causes of people of color. The daughter of American anthropologists, Helen Benedict was raised in Great Britain and the Seychelles Islands. Helen Benedict is also a professor at the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia University. Helen, welcome. Thank you. Helen, your 2009 book, Lonely Soldier, spawned a play, an Academy Award-nominated documentary, a lawsuit, and here's the best, and a promise from the Pentagon that the sexual abuses you wrote about would finally be addressed. What's happened in the last five years?
1: Some... Changes have been made, some reforms, there are changes in in the law. Uh, The most significant is that it used to be that if you were assaulted in the military, you had to report it, if you wanted to report it at all, to your immediate commanding officer, who, it would turn out, either was the rapist or knew the rapist very often, or was was invested in protecting his um, unit from from slander or from getting a bad reputation for his own career. In other words, there was a terrible conflict of interest. Um, so that has been shoved up the chain of command and now reports no longer go to the immediate commander. But the big reform that still has to happen is to take the decisions whether to investigate and, and the um, running of the court-martials and the, the legal stuff completely out of the military altogether because you have to remove the conflict of interest. And until that's done, the whole notion of military justice is an oxymoron.
0: Court-martial indicates a military courtroom and a military courtroom consists of military men are not likely to find against one of their own.
1: Exactly, there's a lot of protection of each other um, which is part of the culture of the military. Everybody is trained to protect each other, and women are uh, considered the outsiders, so there's a closing of ranks um, in, in every sense of the phrase. And both Britain and Canada, for example, and some other countries realized this some 20 years ago, and when it comes to sexual assault and rape... They do run the courts, run the whole investigation out of the military, and it works just fine. But we're still resisting it here. Why? Um, partly because of what you just said. Chain they, of command. You um, change the, the chain, chain of, the of command, command want huh? to protect their own. And there's a lot of talk about how it would undermine their authority, which has not happened in other countries. But I think there's a sense that some kind of control is being taken away from the top brass, and they don't like that.
0: Let's talk about how you came to become one of the, one of the America's uh, great crusaders against sexual assault in the military.
1: Well, I had written about sexual assault and civilian life on and off for many, many, many years. My first books that came out in the 90s, uh, my first nonfiction books, that is, were about that subject. So I was already quite tuned into it. And well, when- if
0: I recall, you were writing about how the press covered the problems of sexual assault. And you handled that some very well. That was my le- third book. Your third book. Yeah, my I first book was
1: called Recovery: How to Survive Sexual Assault for Women, Men, their teenagers and their friends and families. So it was very much about how to avoid re-traumatizing survivors of sexual assault by saying and doing the wrong thing and how to help them instead. Um When when we invaded Iraq in 2003, I decided I had to write about this war because I was upset about this war. So um, I didn't know what to write, so I said, well, why don't I go and listen to some of the first soldiers who were coming back, first Marines, and see what they say about what's going on 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 the ground because we're not really hearing from them. And that's when I met my first women veterans who were pretty freshly back from Iraq, And that's when I began to hear the stories right away about harassment and sexual assault and realized something was really wrong with this picture.
0: A lot of soldiers were upset about the war in general. They felt that they were sort of almost uh, hurting the people they were supposed to be protecting or having an impact on that.
1: They certainly did. And so I was hearing that from the women and the double whammy of being treated so terribly by their supposed comrades at arms so they were coming back doubly traumatized both by combat in in a war that had gone completely awry and by being treated as pariahs and as sex objects and as um, objects of prey by their own comrades
0: Well we know the women not a lot of fighting uh, in wars I mean that's, it's, it's a law isn't it?
1: Well, not anymore. The combat ban was lifted recently. <laughs> but as we know, the nature of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars is more, and more like a guerrilla war, um, and women have been in combat from day one all along.
0: I, I, I got a kick out of the fact that so many, so many women are told that they, they can't fight, almost like way back in the Civil War when there were just black regiments, pretty close, and they had to prove that they, could, they had to prove that they could be killed. It's kind of a... It is an oxymoron. Strange, strange situation.
1: Yes, and then when you look at uh, at mothers in the animal kingdom, they are often the fiercest fighters and the fiercest hunters. So it's odd that we have this idea that, that women are inherently unable to fight. But we're very invested in seeing women as, as soft and passive.
0: How do you prepare for something like that? What did you do to prepare yourself for, I think, a very, very emotional period in your life? dealing with women who say they've been sexually assaulted, raped, abused, all kinds of ways, emotionally and physically.
1: I did not know I was going to wade into this. And in fact, I had taken a 12-year hiatus from that subject because it had been, after three books about sexual assault, it was really eating away at me and making me not feel safe in my daily life and giving me bad dreams. So for 12 years, I wrote other books about other things. But it never stopped making me angry. And it's not just the injustice of the assaults themselves, but, but very much how the women tended to be treated afterwards by the courts, by the police, by their friends, by their families. You know, the way the rape myths stopped people from treating them um, with the respect and justice they deserved as survivors of a brutal crime. Um, and so when I started to hear these stories from from veterans, All the old anger that had always fired me up came right back again. And I had to do something about it. I mean, I was learning that more women were serving and being wounded and killed in the Iraq war than all American wars put together since World War II. And yet 99% of them were being harassed and one third of them were being raped, even though they were taking all the same risks, of losing limbs and, and mental Trauma and everything that male soldiers were having and I just thought this is an injustice that has to be exposed
0: It was men on women not men on men and women on women I assume there might be some of that.
1: There's there's a high rate of men-on-men rape. It's very, very rare for women to assault, to sexually assault, although they do sometimes. But I I never came across a single one of those cases in my research. I've heard of some. But the vast majority, I'm afraid to say, that men are the assailants and they pick on either men or women or sometimes both. Um, It is quickly to say this, it's so important. Rape is a crime of, of anger and domination and power. It is not a crime of pent-up lust. That's the basic thing that must be understood. It is about telling people, I don't like you, I don't want you here, I want to destroy you and have power over you and get you out of, out of here, basically.
0: I kind of suspect so. that this had a very, very strong emotional impact on you personally.
1: Um. Yes, but I have, like many journalists who cover traumatic things and hard things, I've learned to compartmentalize. Post-traumatic stress disorder for journalists? (laughs) There is. In fact, we have a whole center at Columbia University that deals with that, the DART Center, secondary PTSD, but it's nothing compared to what, uh, you know, soldiers will go through or rape survivors, Um, but... I do compartmentalize. And the other thing is, it, it was rewarding work. I mean, many of the people I talked to had never told their stories to anyone else and had did, thought they were alone. And then I was able to tell them, You are not alone. I've talked to dozens of people who've had the same experience. So I felt that I was also able to help them and then help them help each other. And that's the reward for this work. Otherwise, it would be dispiriting indeed.
0: You're listening to Conversations with Alan Walper on WBGO 88.3 FN and WBGO.org. Our guest is Helen Benedict, a journalist and author whose nonfiction books have focused on serious social issues and whose novels are full of humor and satire. I want to get to that book that's on your, that's on, that you're holding on there. There we go, The Sand Queen. Let's just, just take a look at that. That was a book that, um, that seemed to come out of what you were investigating. So read yeah, a little bit from it and sure. tell us a little bit about it.
1: It's called Sand Queen with no the, which is important because that when you understand what Sand Queen means, you'll know why. I'll take back um, the the. <laughs> and it tells the story of a young 19-year-old American soldier, a, a, a woman... And a 22-year-old Iraqi woman who's a medical student, it takes place in Iraq in the biggest American prisoner of war camp that we set up over there, a real place called Camp Bukha in the south of Iraq. And the story goes back and forth between the voice of Kate, the American soldier, and the voice of Naima, the Iraqi woman. Um, and in this scene, quickly, her brother and uh, her little brother, who's 13, and her father have been arrested by American soldiers and put into Camp Buka. And she and the other family members, who had their men swept up in the night, walk there at dawn every morning to try and see if they can find any news of their men. And this is where Naima is when I read this passage. We stand, my sad companions and I, until the sun has crept from the horizon almost to the top of the sky and finally I see a tiny soldier plod up to the fence where we are waiting. He looks as though he can hardly walk under all he carries, with his helmet like an upside-down soup bowl and his sunglasses absurdly large on his little face. He looks like a child in his father's clothes. But of course he is no child. He is a killer and an occupier. I watch him approach, shouting and waving his silly little arms, and I feel such hatred bloom in my heart I do not know myself. Then I notice there is something odd about him, something wrong. I look again. It is a girl. I would laugh out loud if there were any laughter left in me. How desperate the Americans must be to send their girls to war.
0: How desperate we must be we 're also we also uh, tend to uh, criticize other countries for how we treat how they treat victims of sexual assault and rapes, and yet we have as many or well, more than anyone else like Pakistan and India, places like that
1: yes i 've noticed the press is very good at analyzing cultural reasons for why men might rape in other countries, but we never will look at our own cultural reasons i 'm always urging my students to do stories on well, what turns a perfectly nice little baby boy into a rapist? I have a son. I know that men are not born this way, and I know that most men are not rapists. You know, most, by far the majority, are not. But rape is a as a repeat crime. It's an obsessive repeat crime. What is done to a, to a boy to turn him into an abuser like this? That is what, and what's done culturally, and what's done to him personally. Um, we're good at looking at the personal stuff. We're not good at looking at the cultural stuff.
0: That's American. And you are a dual, dual citizen, right, of,
1: uh,
0: of Great Britain and the United States. And you have an accent that has nothing to do with the Bronx, Brooklyn, or Manhattan.
1: <laughs> not last time I looked.
0: <laughs> you've, kept, you've, you've kept that. Are we, how are we different? I mean, you've, you've experienced both worlds. How are we different from uh, Great Britain, for example?
1: Oh, that is a huge, huge question. Oh, do you can do it in two, uh, three minutes. It's so you know? difficult. You
0: grew up, you, grew up you, were, you were born in London, you were in the St. Charlotte Islands, but come on, tell um, us, give us a few minutes of analysis.
1: Well, I'll give you the, good, the thing I love the most, which sounds a little corny, but the reason I live here and not in England is because if you want to aspire to do something like be an artist or be a journalist or be a, a writer, especially an artist or a writer, you will get encouragement here and you will get people who say, accept that you have this ambition. Whereas in England, the usual response to any grand ambition, at least in my experience, has been uh, scoffing and, and um, to joke you out of it because you, you're not supposed to be grand in your ambitions like that. And it's very discouraging. But I also, I left England in the 70s. It's a very different place now. And in the 70s, it was really hard to be a serious journalist as a woman. You were ghettoized into domestic subjects. And that's one of the main reasons I left, yeah.
0: I'm surprised.
1: Yeah, it was way behind here. Um, but there are other things about you know, the British society that are a great deal more progressive than here. I mean, we haven't had a death penalty, for example, in my we. entire lifestyle. We. I say we on both sides because I'm a dual citizen. <laughs> it's a very useful sure. <laughs> well, no, I wasn't sure no,
0: where well, sure you we were going there. We, oh, we as a, we as we a the Britisher Brits. or we as an American?
1: We the Brits have the not Brits. had a death penalty in my entire lifetime. Which I cannot say about America, we the Americans.
0: <laughs> okay, I just want to make sure that I got it right. Yeah. And you uh, decided to become a journalist because?
1: Oh, I have a crusading side to me. You know, there's the side that loves to write novels, but I care about social justice or social injustice a lot, always have, even as a kid. And journalism is the best way I know to address this stuff as a writer and I have to be a writer um, and so even in my novels there are issues of social justice um, but with journalism you can be more direct and, and, and hope that you might make have an effect
0: you had Causing. some effect I mean it, you can write all the novels you want people will always remember you're the ones about Iraq the novels the nonfiction, the plays the documentaries I'm going to connect so. you with that forever
1: I hope so I mean, I think I I would like to say one of the reasons I wrote a novel as well as a a nonfiction play and a nonfiction book about Iraq is because as I was interviewing veterans and we would have these long, deep interviews that went on sometimes for six hours nonstop. Taped? uh, Taped, but in person. I was there always in person in their homes. Um, They would sometimes hit a wall where they couldn't talk anymore because the memories were too painful or too traumatic. And they would fall silent and I came to feel that it was in those silences that the true story of their experience of war lay in the things they couldn't say and that's the field of fiction. So I had to write the novel because I wanted to get deep into the soul. You know you get into a lot of trouble when you have
0: this kind of discussion what's your fiction and nonfiction? and I mean I I find it a little bit um, interesting that you're you're a professor of journalism and they and quite an accomplished uh, writer of fiction. Kind of an (laughs) axi-moron. Or or are we who write only nonfiction guilty of making things up? You don't make stuff up. You use all your background, all your research.
1: Well, in the novel, of course, the characters are made up but the things that happen to them come from real events or, or or things that could be real events yeah i do fact check my fiction but you you know you can go fact check to, your fiction i do fact check my fiction so i don't want you to go away from that i don't well, I have to get Kate's uniform right. I have to get you know, what what Iraqi, what an Iraqi family would eat for dinner right, that sort of thing. What the air smells like, what the desert looks like, what a bomb sounds like, what, uh, how a tourniquet is, is made uh, for a wound. Whatever I'm writing about that I might not really know directly, I will research until I know it. And in okay. fact, I had I interviewed Iraqi refugees as well as soldiers for this novel, and I even I had an Iraqi woman, amazingly brave woman who used to be an interpreter, read the Iraqi sections to to help me get it right. So to that's get it a, right. What did she right. did you
0: find anything that you were that perhaps was not as you thought it was something that that you would know, totally she, believed? She
1: thought she helped me. She helped me understand the difference between being angry and, and being full of hatred. And that was a very important difference. Um, Naima is not full of hatred. Naima is trying to survive. And she's trying to be a real human being and keep her humanity even in the face of all the horrible things America is has done to her family. Um, and I, I find it fascinating to take myself out of the world I know, and the skin I know, and the person and the people I know, and become somebody who's, who's completely different than me. And I can do that in fiction in a way I can't do in nonfiction.
0: Our guest on this edition of Conversations with Alan Walper is Helen Benedict, a journalist and an author whose family is a literary and musical goldmine. <laughs> How about that? We're talking, uh, oh, there's so many things to talk to you about, I only got another 10 minutes. Look, let's talk about Stephen O'Connor, your husband, who's a noted poet, a short story writer. Your son, Simon O'Connor, is a lead guitarist of Amazing Baby, an American rock band.
1: And now of two new bands, one's called Karoma and his own band, Simon Doom.
0: <sighs> and your daughter?
1: And my daughter is a budding journalist who is... Budding. Not, she's just graduated from college and she's already written and published several articles and I'm very proud of her.
0: This all started at the Seychelles Islands when your father uh, decided that, uh, and your mother, an anthropologist, he couldn't get a grant to go to India, so he wound up almost in the Indian Ocean, right?
1: That's right. Two years in Mauritius, which is a little island nearer India, and then six months in the Seychelles which are other little islands nearer Africa but basically they're both in the middle of the ocean thousands of miles away from anywhere now there's an airport and a thriving tourist trade so rich people like the royal the royals can hop a plane and get there
0: the royals you like the royals what do you think of the royals i
1: have no interest in them whatsoever really nope why not I think it's a obsolete institution that they should go and earn their living in regular jobs like everyone. I have,
0: else. A, f- I have a interrupting you, I have a feeling that you and your husband, um, both of you kinda of radical in your approach to life. You met at Berkeley School of Journalism, right? Out on the coast?
1: He was doing a master's in English lit but ah. we did meet in graduate school. We actually met in a creative writing class where we were both moonlighting from what we were supposed to be doing. So he was supposed to be doing you know, literature, literary criticism and I was supposed to be doing journalism and instead we were writing short stories. Together. In this class. Of it
0: obviously worked.
1: Well, it you seems s- to have. We began by showing each other, critiquing each other's stories, which we still do. Still? Mm. Our first, first readers.
0: But your son decided that uh, that wasn't uh, what he wanted to do. He wanted to go on his own and
1: that's right.
0: And be a songstress. Songstress. when I say that he wanted to be <laughs> a um, he wanted to create things through music. He's
1: very musical. He was born musical. It was obvious right away. And music has been his passion his whole life. So he's been in a lot of bands, and he writes most of the music. And for his new band, he writes all of it. And uh, so he loves to compose, and he's a great guitarist.
0: And your daughter, who recently wrote an article about the chaos, I think, at Columbia University.
1: Yeah, she wrote about the incredibly brave young woman who is um, protesting her the rape that she suffered at the hands of another of well, student. Well, be careful. By this is journalism, the alleged rape. Alleged rape. Well, I'm not writing a journalism article. I'm being interviewed, so I can say what I want. I know, but I have to be careful. But anyway, you can be careful and call it alleged. Um, Anyway, she's carrying around a mattress uh, to symbolize the mattress on which she was raped until there's justice. So she's starting a kind of activist-slash-artistic performance art movement, and that's what my daughter wrote about, for a site called Women Under Siege, which is an excellent site edited by Lauren Wolf about women in conflict zones and um, women under conflict.
0: Well, the debate is going to be whether creating that into some kind of a, um, a performance will impact on other women who are coming forward and discussing um, their problems and their, their victimization of sexual assaults.
1: What I would like to see, I think would be amazing, is if all the women on the campuses all over the country who had been raped while students carried a mattress like that. We would have thousands and thousands of people carrying mattresses around. It would be a very powerful statement and be an amazing movement. Um, but certainly she, uh, the bravery of this young woman is setting an example, and um, she's not the only one. There have been other young women who have come out to other campuses um, before her and I consider them heroines. It is a hard thing to do.
0: The universities, yours included, have been slow to recognize the sexual assaults on campuses. What do you think that is?
1: They're protecting their reputations. I think they're afraid that, that people, parents won't send their kids there if they think there's a lot of rape going on. Um, and I think that's the bottom line just as it is in other institutions the church covered up its problem, the military covers up its problems. so it's a similar issue and um, they have to clearly have to be forced to deal with it better and that's what's happening now.
0: You're going to carry on a mattress yourself? Or?
1: Actually I might if I have time because the invitation is out there to show your support by going and helping her carry it. What whoever about fa- wants to <laughs> <laughs>
0: What about the faculty? Your colleagues at Columbia, what do they think about all this?
1: The ones I know and I, who I've discussed this with are totally on her side. I mean, we, we, um, we are really protective of our students, and we want them to feel safe, and we want them to find justice. Um, and so I'm, I'm happy to say that my faculty is very reasonable about this. By which I mean, they agree with me. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, school, so at, we, school we, of
0: journalism, of course, I would hope so. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm a little confused though about um, why it all is happening now. All of a sudden, and this has been going on for a long, long time.
1: It has been, including yes, a long, long time. Are we
0: more sensitive to it? The country more sensitive to it, or are more people more people like I you? I think there
1: may be there may be a. Um, a sort of ignition effect of when it, when rape in the military was all over the news. Um, maybe it gave the courage for people who were suffering the same problem in other venues, in other areas to speak out more. It got, it got the subject out there uh, made it seem less taboo made it easier to talk about so i'm sure that there's been some effect of that you know the more stories you see about this subject in the media you know the less hard it is to join in with the discussion so i do think there's been a kind of a, a ball rolling effect like a snowball getting bigger and bigger um, but it's also sometimes it just takes individual people to just have the bravery to stand out and to do it with articulateness and, and to do it with grace to catch the, the imagina- public imagination and, and quite a few young women did that too.
0: It's ironic because uh, over the years the big debate in journalism of course is whether to identify a woman or a man who was sexually assaulted and now everyone's coming forward.
1: Well you know this the is stigmata. actually not exactly right. The debate was not this. The debate was whether you name them without their permission or not. The practice has always been to allow the survivor, or the alleged survivor, to decide whether to be named. And if they decided to be named, then you would name them, which which has happened before and is happening now. So this has been misrepresented by a lot of journalists. I just wrote a comment on a New York Magazine article today correcting the journalist about this. There has never been the assumption that we name people against their will. And there's been a debate about it, but the preponderance of agreement has been we do not name people against their will.
0: But we do name those who are accused.
1: We do in this country. Again, in England, we don't until they're convicted, which is interesting.
0: Well, we have about 30, 35 seconds to decide whether we should.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's too complicated.
0: I don't think so. Should I we... Don't,
1: I don't think the victim of a crime and the accused of a crime are, are, are on a par. They're not on a par legally, and they're not on a par in any other way. So to equate them, you don't do that with any other kind of crime. So that I don't think there's even a discussion really about whether their situation is the same.
0: And Helen Benedict has the final word.
1: <laughs> Thank you.
0: Your crusades of one you admire is all across the literary landscape. Thanks for sharing your personal and professional life with us.
1: Thank you very much. It's fun.
0: Joanna Walper is senior producer of our program and Doug Doyle is executive producer and Conrad Sanguinetti is our engineer. Dana Damiani is a production associate. By the way, all of her interviews are available on demand by Googling Conversations with Alan Wolper. Until we talk again, I'm Alan Wolper. Special thanks to Phantom Audio, a full-service production studio in New York's Flatiron District, and support for Conversations with Alan Wolper has been provided by the Blanche and Irving Laurie Foundation.